Wardcast episode 235, go! I'm Dylan Alvento, and today I'm joined by Emma Kinema, uh, campaign lead over at Code CWA and co-founder of Game Workers Unite. How are you doing, Emma? I'm great. Super busy. There's a lot of organizing going on, seeing as the world is starting to fall apart a little bit at the seams. But beyond that, I'm really good. Yeah. Um, and despite that, there's someone selling wood outside your apartment for some reason. That's that's accurate. Um, hopefully people can't hear it too much. What is he like? I Sorry, I just want to touch on this very quickly. Not He's not clarifying if he's selling like firewood or carpentry wood, just wood, right? Yeah. And the problem is, it's not like I live in a forest or something like I live in a, you know, kind of urban apartment complex. So I'm not sure why we're chopping wood and sawing wood. But you know, whatever you do, you. Is he doing that as well? Is he preparing the wood at the same time? As he's I honestly don't know. (laughs) That's funny. So how are you doing? Uh, How's your quarantine life going? Good. Yeah. You know, I'm bunkered down with my husky and my partner. Um, and, you know, kind of just sitting at my computer 24 seven, uh, waking up, doing organizing work and falling asleep again. So does that do your like, uh, responsibilities, have they changed at all with the pandemic happening? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, so typically I'm out traveling quite a lot, um, you know, traveling from city to city, meeting with different workers and, and helping them organize kind of directly in person, um, But of course, now, given the COVID-19 situation, I'm kind of stuck at home here. But, you know, the work goes on. There's still a lot of work that can be done digitally in terms of organizing. You know, I think we've switched over to Zoom calls and things. And we're still running committee meetings. And we're still building campaigns. We're still doing trainings. We're still teaching people how to organize and how to do it effectively and safely. And, you know, it goes on, you know. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the workplace organizing I feel like there's a lot of like how to how to organize safely within your workplace because like there, you might have a or you tend to have a supervisor that might not be the most uh, uh, appreciative uh, hearing about employees organizing or just there might just be several threats. So do you find that stuff having less resistance and being easier to like reach out to people and get them started in those talks now that so many people are working from home and teleworking? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in some ways, organizing has gotten harder and easier. Um, You know, I think for a lot of our campaigns, some of them got kind of like a bit of a a stumbling block when they switched to remote work from home. um, Because they're like, oh, shit, well, now we're not, you know, on the shop floor with each other. I can't just like grab a coworker and talk about stuff. This is gonna be a lot harder. Um, But also in this on the flip side, that obstacle is also kind of an opportunity because for a lot of workplaces right now, you know, the boss has really kind of um, essentially retreated from the role of socially cohering the workplace. A lot of people are really isolated. They're lonely. Maybe they're not seeing their coworkers as much and they're kind of cooped up. And that's actually an opportunity, I think, for organizers to actually spend time reaching out to people, just personally checking in with them, seeing how they're doing. And, um, you know, and then, of course, connecting that back to workplace issues and talking about those things, too. But you know, just to serve as a connective tissue, I think, between all of our coworkers, that's a great role that organizers can do now that we're remote from work. And, you know, that helps lay the the social kind of cooperative, um, supportive basis for actually organizing in solidarity with one another. Yeah, I see that 
being a lot of help in cases where like you might have a supervisor or boss that does not do those like kind of social check-ins. Like I feel like a pandemic might be a good uh, opportunity to see like where a supervisor or manager is just there to ensure you get the work done versus there to like ensure that you are happy in your job or like or safe or comfortable during the quarantine and like what could be a stressful situation for individuals. Right. And, you know, ultimately, that's definitely more so for uh, a place of work where people are still kind of going about things normally, you know, not a lot has changed beyond the fact that being being, you know, being remote from work from home. Um, But, you know, a lot of people are also experiencing a huge amount of, you know, pay cuts or people taking away 401k matching or um, restricting right, uh, different rights in the workplace or, you know, cutting down hours or layoffs and things. And unfortunately for those people, it's a different situation, right? There's less of that opportunity. And really, you know, organizing, it's so essential that you're organizing, not just when, you know, there's a crisis, but in the moment, in moments leading up to that, you know, you don't want to be caught unaware with no organization, no support, no structure, no lines of communication amongst the worst workforce, you know, once, you know, shit hits the fan, you want to have that all prepared beforehand. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but we've gotten tons and tons and tons of requests to to help people organize in this moment, because, of course, people are really feeling the pressure. But, you know, there's only so much you can do reacting in the moment. Really, the, the best advice is go back six months earlier and start organizing then when you didn't think you needed a union, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, and, you know, we're, we're still, you know, of course, helping every single person who reaches out as much as we possibly can, um, you know, and people are doing direct actions to, you know, protect themselves and win different conditions and improvements for themselves. But um, ultimately, it's so essential that we organize in the lead up to moments like this and not just reactively in the moment too. At the very, very bare minimum, every single person deserves a sustainable living wage. Everyone deserves to work in safe, healthy, protected conditions as much as are literally possible. And people deserve to have, you know, their voice and and their rights respected on the job and not just, you know, having conditions granted on the whims of management, but actually also in agreement between the workers organized amongst themselves um, to, to, to ensure those conditions, right? And ultimately, you know, that's the floor. In my opinion, that should be the floor of having a job, being respected, being paid a living fair wage, and, you know, um, really being an active part of the workplace. Um, What people should ultimately aspire to is, you know, I think it's important that people understand when it comes to organizing, you know, I think you have to have a certain kind of analysis of the workplace in that, you know, um, as workers, we produce a certain set of value. And, and we generate a certain amount of profit for the company, right? But we don't re- we don't see all that returned back to us. We just don't. Um, we say we produce forty dollars of value an hour, and you know our, our wage is like twenty dollars an hour. There's just twenty dollars being taken off, you know, and being given to the company, putting into you know shareholder pockets or into bank accounts somewhere that's not coming back to you. And you know, that's the inherent nature of, of, of the workplace, because so long as there are bosses and so long as there are workers, that's the role, right? Because essentially all of the profit that a company generates and a company is motivated by generating profit, that profit is just a cut of your wages that are unpaid to you. That's all that is. Like if you look at the economics, that's what that is, right? And so as long as that is occurring, I think it's so essential we understand that it doesn't matter if you're if you feel like you're making enough money. The, the truth is, you're, you could be making so much more 
Um, it's just it's going into someone else's bank account. It's going to someone else's pocket, right? For instance, like I'm organizing a group of workers right now. Their average wage is about $20 an hour, which they feel really happy about, actually. You know, most of the working class isn't that stable. They don't have $20 an hour. But they found out that their company contracts them out to another larger company, right, to do some work. And that bigger company pays their company $55 an hour a head per person for that labor. So the big company pays the small company $55 an hour, and that Small company pays the workers $20 an hour or so, which is just $35 being taken straight out of the, the worker's hand and being put into, you know, a, a company bank account somewhere. Do you know what I mean? So even if you feel comfortable, even if you feel relatively stable and happy, I think it's important that we understand that as workers, we generate a great much more value than we ever receive back from that labor. And, and you know, it's it's you're entitled to that that value that you generate, you know, uh, I think especially in terms of games, like, you know, we are the people who actually make games, right? We're the ones who actually design it and write it and, and create 3d models and animate it and program it and all these things, QA test it. You know, we, we moderate the communities. Um, we do all of these things. We create the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars of profit and value in this industry. And yet the workforce doesn't receive even nearly a, a small scratch of what that is. So there's there's a, a great reason to organize in that way. Yeah. It's also kind of ridiculous how in games specifically as compared to like general, the general tech sector, like general tech, like a software engineer or a web engineer is paid significantly more than people are in games. And like the classic like, idiom or knowledge that like supervisors or bosses would say would be like well like people are like banging down our doors to like get your job or like get in this position because like hey you're working in games like you're making you're making the fun stuff you're not making you know boring tech you're not working at x y or z place just making banking software or general software or whatever and it's unfortunate that that excuse is used to leverage against the employees even more so to pay them less. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately it's not even all that accurate if you actually look at the numbers of people like coming and going from the industry. Um, you know, there's an artificial problem created here by the corporations in this industry to purposely create a high turnover such that, you know, on the average, uh, game workers are relatively young, they're relatively inexperienced, they're new to the industry on average because people burn out every five to seven years and they leave the industry because, you know, the conditions are bad. The pay is worse than compared to elsewhere in tech and, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, that artificially keeps the wages suppressed. It keeps conditions suppressed because there's always a new influx of younger people coming. But also at the same time, you know, people say, you know, oh, there's just so many people beating down the door to have these jobs. You should be so grateful to have this job that, we're all, you know, we're at our dream jobs, which to be fair, like when I worked in the games industry, I was really excited to be in it. I was passionate about video games. Uh, several of them really did feel like potential dream jobs. And yet at the same time, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be making a living wage or making a fair wage where I can actually one day hope to retire, or have a family or have kids or a house, which is kind of out of the question for so many people in the industry. So just because we're passionate doesn't mean we should be completely open to exploitation for the profits of our own bosses. And the other thing is too, like, 
People say there's like a bunch of people knocking on the door to work in the industry. I think that's bullshit. I think that's completely <laughs> bullshit because I've worked at multiple studios where we were severely understaffed. I don't think I've ever worked at a studio where we were fully, truly well-staffed, where people had a good distribution of work and things were really humming. There was always understaffing. There was always like two guys trying to do the work of six people, right? Or like a team of 20 who's trying to do the work of, you know, 40. It, it just feels like that's always the notion in, in game development. And, and the truth is they want to purposely keep understaffed because that means they can turn out a game faster by crunching that smaller staff um paying them less because it's over a shorter period of time and then replacing them when they burn out with younger workers who can, they can pay for a cheaper uh wage right they are purposely creating terrible working conditions with a terrible burnout rate so that way they can keep wages low and thus profits higher because you know profits are just unpaid wages so i think it's completely bullshit and the industry has extremely an extremely kind of deep requirement for being able to work in the industry. You can't just pull a UX um, or a UI designer from just any other company and pull them into games because they have to be able to relate to um, how, you know, game audio works and game art works and how it relates to, um, you know, game design and programming and all these different things. Um, and, And ultimately, like, to work in the games industry, you have to have a pretty deep cultural knowledge of games too and common trends and kind of the culture around games and um i I think it's a complete false statement to say that there are just tons of qualified people ready for the industry yeah yeah i I agree i mean like there i've seen multiple like staff openings at x y or z studio or a game developer be open for for long stretches of times just because they probably can't find the person that has three to five years development experience in c plus 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 has released one to two commercial games um i kind of want to take a step back uh on something because you were you were talking about like the profit a company makes to like the take-home wage or income of the employee and how there's that vast gap there right um do do you feel like there's a hurdle there of like explaining that to them and, and kind of communicating the idea of like you might be comfortable, relatively comfortable with what you're making, but like, here's what the company is making off of your labor. And like, here's the percentage that's going to you versus the percentage that's going to them. And because there are so many different people with so many different like fields of expertise and not a lot of them are directly related to like understanding how the company makes money. I can see that sometimes like being a difficult thing to communicate proper to an employee. I think broadly those kinds of, I think, a uh, worldview kind of changing wor- uh, work kind of it, it happens over the long term it's something i think people have their worldview changed by the process of organizing and by engaging in the process of actual struggle and trying to improve conditions for their coworkers and things that can really change and open up someone's worldview and their perspective on what their role is in the workplace right they're not just a game designer they're um you know a person who creates a certain amount of value and and a certain amount of it gets turned into profit that they don't see any of, right? So I think that that happens over time. It, it can be a gentle shift. But I think the important thing is really to understand, actually, you know, organizing is not about convincing someone that they need a union or debating them on the nature of surplus value extraction from our labor and, you know, all these different things. It, it's really actually the complete inverse. Good organizing is absolutely about decentering oneself 
not trying to, you know, push any kind of agenda. It's not about convincing people. It's not even about, you know, um, you know, changing their opinions necessarily. First and foremost, good organizing has to be about meeting someone where they are, listening to them very actively, asking good, open-ended questions that get them to talk about themselves and the issues that they're facing, the things they're struggling with, the things they're really passionate about, what their values are. Really engage with them on these genuine, real, person-to-person um, subjects and connecting that back to the idea of organizing, right? You're not, you know, having conversations just to, to convince someone to join something or convince someone that they are exploited. They'll learn to feel that when they when they struggle and when they realize the boss is pushing back for a reason. And why is this otherwise, you know, potentially friendly boss or manager being so terrible now that we're asking for a little bit of improvements? Well, it's because of this exact profit motive. And that's the thing people can learn in the struggle when you push to a certain boundary and you feel that push back from the boss, right? That's educational. But I think early on, it's so essential that we approach things just as really just trying to get to know our coworkers, build genuine connection and solidarity between each other. And understand that people are not moved by facts and figures and understanding the economic relations between employers and employees. They're moved by stories. They're moved by emotions. They're moved by, you know, genuine personal things like that, that you can really connect to them with. Right. Well, you helped put together that, uh, that, um, mixer, what was it? The PAX West 2018, because it wasn't last PAX West, the one before, um, that we helped showcase on the, on the Hidden Gems panel. And I, when I went there, with with Khalif and my friend Mello, who were listening to these people tell their stories, uh, like there was one talking about their QA experiences, which I mean, QA is infamously like undertreated in in games specifically, and it, it it is really illuminating. And like, so you're right, like those those types of stories and like finding common ground, uh, I I think it helps helps push the 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 purpose the purpose of organizing. Yeah, it, no, it's true. I mean, it, that's why a lot of the work of both, you know, Game Workers Unite early on and, and any really good organizing campaign has to be first about, you know, what we call agitation and education, right? It's the basics of organizing, you know, kind of exposing certain problems and issues in the workplace, you know, teaching people about that, but also connecting to them and kind of tapping into those strong emotions that they might actually have that maybe they're not talking about and maybe most people walk around pretending like they're not you know dealing with some kind of issue but you know people aren't cardboard cutouts even the happiest people at work always have something that they care about something they're passionate about something that they really wish was improved right and so it's our job as good organizers is not to become complacent when we think oh person a at my workplace is being complacent or they're just being lazy or apathetic they don't want to actually organize no we need to find what issues they really genuinely care about apathy to an organizer is a sign that we're not being good enough organizers and actually listening to them and learning about them because everyone has something that moves them right and you said something interesting um you were you were talking about kind of the the nature of qa testers and qa workers um in the industry and for folks who aren't familiar qa testers are like people who um work with the software to find problems and issues and bugs and things and and kind of identify how to cause them so that way engineers can fix them um, it's a, yeah, like you, you mentioned kind of a second class citizen kind of role in the industry, often paid much worse, often kind of temporary contract labor, um, treated, you know, socially, even as if they're not really part of the team sometimes. Um, it, it's a tough gig for sometimes, but, um, I think it's interesting to think of QA testers because I think it's a perfect explanation of how, um, 
working people actually have power. Because I actually think QA testers are some of the most powerful people in the entire industry and potentially have the greatest leverage in terms of making real change in the industry through organizing. What I mean by that is, while yes, they're not paid very well, and while yes, they're not seen as prestigious roles, and while yes, they're not you know treated as like true professionals in most workplaces, QA testers touch every single aspect of a piece of software. They touch all the art, the audio, the design, production, UI, everything. They touch everything. And especially in the lead up to a release of a game, you know, in the in the last kind of few weeks and months leading up to releasing a game and uh, in, in making it go live, QA testers play a huge role and work their asses off very, very hard working alongside the, de- the developers to fix all the remaining issues and to really polish it. And I think during that moment, companies are extremely vulnerable to a potential organizing push during that moment. Because, uh, you know, if you're trying to, get a game out of the door. And I think anyone who's worked on a game knows just how giant of a task that is and how monumental it is and how much effort it tends to take. If your QA team just walks away, your entire project falls apart. It's going to be a a real piece of shit software when you launch, right? Um, In that that way, the, the, the most poorly treated workers in the industry are actually, I think, in some ways, the most powerful workers in the entire industry. Um, and that's not accidental, actually. You look at a lot of industries and very, very essential people to the economy are paid terribly. I mean, I think the COVID-19 crisis is putting that so clearly. Nurses are so essential to our economy. Um, you know, educators are essential to our economy. Grocery store workers are essential to our economy. Um, people who drive food around for people are essential to the economy. Farm workers are essential to the economy. Janitors are essential to the economy. You know, it's not essential. Um, the vast majority of the kind of professional white collar working class, right? (laughs) Software engineers and people like that, people like myself, we're not essential because society goes on without us. Now, that's not to say we're not important. We don't play a role. Of course, we play a role in society. But I think often the most powerful, most important, most foundational people who labor in in an industry or in society in general are often the most poorly paid, the most suppressed, the most um, unappreciated. And I think the job of organizing is understanding that power, that latent kind of sleeping dormant power within those workers and learning how to tap it and tap into it and really activate people to understand and then manifest their power and actually use their power to improve their workplace, to stand together in solidarity, to to fight for better conditions and really just dignity and respect on the job at bare minimum. So what are what are the what are the types of manifestations that can come out as because I mean, like, I I feel like the common one for for labor organizing is a walkout or something similar to that. Like you see, like the fulfillment center employees at Amazon doing that during this crisis, like the walkout at Riot due to the sexism, the latent sexism that was um, a part of their culture and a protest against that and in their management. Is that like the most common or like the 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 most? I don't know. I, I see that lever pulled a lot. And I'm curious if like, that's the one that's easiest to grasp for the one that's most effective or. Right. So, I mean, um, in understanding where workers draw our power, which is the fact that we workers create things, we build things, we maintain things, we improve things, we um, distribute things, whatever the case may be, we create the working class creates and the owning business class does not. They coordinate they they grab profits, they do things like that, but we actually generate the value of society and of our companies, right? And 
if you can understand that, then the greatest power that workers have, you know, it, it's really the removal of that labor, right? And that often, like you're saying, takes the form of walkouts or strikes and things like that. And and ultimately, strikes are really a kind of a nuclear option. They're actually not that common. But, you know, it's, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what comes to mind when I say union, most people think strikes, maybe a contract, and that's about it. Maybe election campaigns, if they're really somehow, you know, a little bit more savvy. Um, and ultimately, like, Strikes are very rare. You know, for instance, with CWA, only 3% of all of our organizing campaigns um, end up requiring a strike to get the boss to recognize us and to, to, you know, recognize improvements in our contracts. Okay, 3%. It's very small. 97% of all organizing campaigns don't even use a strike because it is quite a nuclear option. It's really, really intense. But the goal is to you know, first try a great many things, starting from very small actions leading to all the way big, like, you know, strikes and, you know, workplace sit-ins and seizures and all kinds of stuff. Um, There's a gradation of different actions people do to manifest that power and to, you know, allude to that power. Because sometimes just making the threat of using that power can be enough to to cause someone to back off and improve your pay or conditions or whatever. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people are familiar with walkouts and strikes, but um, you know, there's so many other things before that that people can also do and typically do. And really, often the tactics in an organizing campaign are not escalated by the workers. They're escalated by the boss. You know, maybe a couple of us request a certain change from our manager and we're denied. Okay, well, we're going to go talk to the boss. Okay, we were denied there. Okay, maybe we'll start talking to our coworkers and maybe we do a petition. Okay, they still denied us. Okay, well, maybe we're going to go um, do like a march on the boss and, and like a group of us go to talk to the, the boss and ask for these demands. Um, okay, he denies us then. Okay, what's next? You know, that's when you start really considering things like walkouts and strikes or work stoppages and all kinds of other things. Often it's the boss refusing to actually negotiate in good faith that requires workers who are organizing to use those more drastic tactics, right? Um but yeah, it's really born out of necessity and it's born out of escalation often caused by the boss refusing to really engage with us. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds like there's a lot of silent work that happens in organizing and Yeah. I'm curious. I'm I'm thinking that the the reason people are so familiar with the strikes or the walkouts in their connection to labor organizing is due to the fact that those are the stories that are most publicized. It's if, if a negotiation happens before that point and everything is cordial, then like, then there's nothing, there's nothing to really to write about. Right. Thinking about things like the, uh, the blizzard employees that were, uh, protesting against blizzard, uh, after the banning of that hearthstone player, you saw like, publicized a lot of that of that story like the protesting and 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 the the frustration from the blizzard employees and you know the 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 fallout itself from from blizzard taking those actions but like after all that kind of subsides like you're kind of left wondering it was like okay well what was the resolution like was there one was there not one did everything just go back to business as usual like it's 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 weird how you know there might be a lot of work being done by the laborers to like get their requests met, but we don't see that as, as an outsider of that organization. Right. I mean, people are familiar with strikes because they are more catching. They're things people write about, right? It's like big news. But, you know, I think if you talk to the average person who is a union member, um, if you talk about the things that 
being in, an, in that union means to them, chances are they're not going to talk about a strike. They're not going to talk about some big wild action they were part of. Chances are they're going to talk about, you know, the relationships of support they have with their coworkers or how they feel like there's guaranteed protections in their contract that helps them, you know, feel safe and stable and like they can really build a career at their job. They're going to talk about how, you know, their steward structure, um, you know, helps escalate grievances and issues workers are facing so that they can be handled in a more democratic fashion, right? They're going to talk about, you know, the mutual aid they did together over the weekend, um, helping communities during uh, a particular crisis or what have you. You know, that those are the stories I actually hear from people in unions. Um, I think the the picture and the impressions that the media and news creates is so so wildly inaccurate and so wildly disconnected from the reality of what being in a union really is, right? Because people think, oh, I want to be an organizer. I'll, you know, wave a flag and storm the barricades with my coworkers. And it's like, it's nothing like that. It's conversations. It's being patient. It's having lots of meetings and coming to decisions and working as a group and navigating personalities and sometimes egos and stuff. It's having lots and lots and lots and lots of one-on-one conversations with your coworkers, getting to know them, you know, kind of like I was talking about previously. Um, that's what organizing is all about. It's about being there for each other as people, right? And yes, you have the more dramatic moments too, like when you have a march on the boss or when you win a big demand or you suffer a defeat and you kind of have to make a tactical retreat or something. But, um, you know, those stick too. But really the basics of it is building a culture of care and support and communication and transparency and honesty and accountability in the workplace. And I think, I think if you ask the vast majority of union members, that's, that's what they'll tell you about, which is different than I think what you'll see in the newspaper. So do you think, I, I have a couple of questions based off of that. So like, I'm thinking about solidarity, right? So like as, as someone that is like, um, I'm more so on the indie side. So obviously I have solidarity with the workers at any given game studio, but like, I don't see that on a day-to-day basis. And, and unless I'm communicating, unless I know someone that's working there, it's hard for me to like know specifically about what's going on. Um, for labor organizing, is it also important to find solidarity amongst like a general community, whether it's like, if we're talking games, like people that are fans of games like i mean i helped uh, we we did a we did a panel at magfest with the the baltimore dc chapter of game workers unite and they were they were hosting the panel and like i think most of the uh, most of the audience obviously were 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 game players not game developers and is it just as important to find solidarity amongst that group as it is within uh game development itself or like is that kind of seen as a secondary thing like let's let's make sure like we have the organization power first and then communicate that to a wider audience that's a great question i mean so the absolute primary thing when organizing is shop floor based organizing building genuine connection and solidarity and and, and, you know tactical communication and support across the workplace right because like I mentioned, you know, the power of, of workers comes from the work that we do and that happens at the company or, you know, on company hours and things like that if we're working from home. And, uh, you know, that has to be always primary number one because, you know, we can employ community support, pressure in the press, we can do um, political actions, all kinds of things. But all of those are abstracted from the shop floor and they're ultimately they have a lot less leverage. They're less powerful. They're less effective. It's less directly in the control and in the hands of, of the actual workplace, right? 
um, that being said, you know, solidarity is actually incredibly important and having communities and solidarity with an organizing effort is so, so essential. Um, I'm actually organizing a uh, company right now where um, it's, it's really been important for the workers to actually be collaborating with, with their local churches. They're collaborating with um, their churches because they're really important to the community. Um, it just happens to be something that's really um, important to them. Right. And I think those kinds of things are actually really common, you know, working with different uh, groups in the area. And, and I think, you know, that also could apply to player communities and stuff. Certainly. I mean, I think of the riot walkout, we had huge amounts of player support, um, which was partially organized and sparked by some of the organizers behind the walkout. Um, and it, it provided a huge amount of, you know, positivity and optimism about it that I think helped also inspire some of the coworkers to actually stand up themselves as well when seeing their players react so positively. So there's definitely a role to play in all that. Um, but I think it, it does need to come a little secondary. But I think it's also important to understand, you know, solidarity, it, it's not just a word. It's a, it's a feeling. It's like an actual bond between people. Solidarity is an emotion, not a word. And And I think the most genuine way, the most real way in which you can really build and 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 wield solidarity in organizing is through multiple organized bodies of people right so you know if, if like an example like if a bunch of workers at an amazon warehouse are out on strike or they're doing a walkout yes it is good that individual people you know tweet messages of support or you know donate to a, a strike fund or whatever the case may be but what's most important actually is solidarity between organizations, solidarity between different groups of workers, different groups of people in the community who are organized, who can actually wield collective solidarity, collective power, right? Because um, ultimately, whatever role you play in society, you are stronger when you work in concert with your fellow people, right? And so I think it's important to understand solidarity is like a very real, very tangible, very emotional thing that you can feel when you're like acting as a broad group together, um, not just as an individual who's tweeting support or sharing some kind of message on Facebook, which is all good too. That's also very important. But I think people need to understand that when it comes to organizing, whether you're just supporting an organizing effort or you're leading it or you're in it, you know, it's all about being active, like really active and building relationships and building structure and building power in a very real way, very tangible way. And I think that's important to understand. So in the example of like a fulfillment center employee, like trying to find solidarity with another group in that example, is it, should they be looking for solidarity in like the white collar employees at Amazon or possibly in like, you know, other delivery slash fulfillment services or like what is, what is the, where does the imagination take that? I mean, really anywhere. Uh, it could be local churches. It could be local community groups um, that represent different say, like nationalities or social demographics in, on the shop floor, it could absolutely be um, uh, solidarity w between the kind of, um, you know, so-called blue-collar fulfillment center workers and the white-collar so-called um, software engineers at the same company. You know, I think all of those things are really powerful, very important things. In fact, I see, you know, if you look at the kind of the broad network and coalition of people organizing in and around um you know, these kinds of Amazon warehouses and things, you see a great network of like different national groups uh, represented, you know, different um, immigrant community groups in the communities who are actually supporting this work, right? And so I think any and all of those kinds of groups are really essential. And I think here to now, you know, beyond different 
one-off bursts of kind of individual solidarity displayed. I think the the quote unquote white collar, um, you know, professional quote unquote uh, software engineer class of a lot of these big companies, whether it's Amazon um, or any other, um, has really failed to step up to the task of organizing themselves, such that when they really do demonstrate solidarity with these other workers at, working for the same company, it really means something. It really means something material, something concrete. There's a real, um, you know, movement of people working in concert with each other rather than just individuals choosing to do a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, I mean, I'm glad you keep like, you know, returning to like the local community, like example, because like, obviously, I feel like, I mean, a lot of this is all jumbled together, right? Like, like you, you, you bring up like how labor organizing is partially about like decentralizing the self and like, working with like your your fellow co-workers. And like that being able to do that decentralization is kind of like imbued into like understanding like how much American individualism has like, you know, seeped into the bones of every person in this country and trying to like working through that. Like it's like it's an inherently like cultural, socio-political discussion there. So like trying to focus on like communities is a great example. And like you look at, you know, when Amazon wanted to do HQ2, uh, they were looking at, you know, Long Island City and they were looking at Northern Virginia. And unfortunately, I'm in Virginia. So like we <laughs> we lost that battle because I guess Nova didn't really care too much whether or not Amazon moved in. But like you, Long Island City, like you saw people in that community like get extremely angry and like basically like throw them out and say like, no, we don't want you here. We don't want you affecting like, you know, the housing costs and the the standard of living and all of that stuff. Um, and that was very much a a specific geographical place banding together and doing that. Yeah. I mean, ultimately power is created and manifested and realized from the basis levels of whatever the group is. So if, if you're building, you know, uh, a labor organization, you want it rooted very deeply, very firmly, most primary um, within individual workplaces and individual groups of people and individual people themselves. If you're building kind of community mass mobilization, you want to root that in the local communities and the local issues and the local people um, and, and the context there, because that's where your roots can grow deepest. It's where it can be the most powerful and lasting form of structure. That being said, for whatever kind of organizing, it's important to have, you know, a greater level of coordination, whether it's state or regional or national um, to really coordinate some of that stuff too. Like, uh, you know, not everything can just be completely local because, you know, for instance, Amazon is a great example of this because, um, you know, there's a lot of wonderful local organizing around the Amazon warehouse situation. And yet at the same time, Amazon can really play whack-a-mole pretty easily. They've got a lot of power and a lot of money. They're very flexible and they're very good at, you know, retaliating and pushing back on people. Um, and because people are very local centric, so it has to be kind of, you know, uh, in a, kind of a, a unity of opposites, I guess, as it were, where you kind of need to both be national and local in focus, um, national in coordination, local in terms of power building and genuine, um, you know, manifesting of that power. Is that a, the reasoning behind why Game Workers Unite has like specific location based chapters? And then you have the overall discord where you all kind of come together and, and communicate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very early on, the vast majority of us who were there at the beginning really wanted to ensure that this wasn't just a single moment at GDC 2018. And 
that Game Workers Unite wasn't just like a single spark that kind of flittered out, right? It could have just turned into a, a social discord that talked about things or vented about work conditions and, you know, talked about labor and stuff. But it was important that it turn into a real flame, something sustainable, something that could actually, you know, spark other little flames and fires and things. Um, and, and I think rooting it in the local context was so essential to that because immediately after GDC 2018, when we kind of first really did our first major kind of action together, um, it was, you know, the first thing we did was come right back and say, okay, let's found some local chapters and, and try this out. And it worked pretty well. So we started founding more. And, you know, out of that, we see national unions that have spun up around the world and, um, you know, Code CWA as well, which is really exciting. And there's genuine union organizing all over the place now. And even in other industries, like I've met with workers um, in many other industries who have seen Game Workers Unite as kind of like a spark that, you know, lit their own little pile of kindling, I guess, as it were. Um, and it, I think that was really essential to, to be able to do that. And I think local organizing was a huge portion of that. That being said, I think they're also it also suffered in some ways, I think, from being a little too grassroots, a little too decentralized, a little too uncoordinated um, in some ways. But, you know, also it's a completely volunteer organization. That's how it goes. Um, you know, it's not going to be perfectly run and perfectly staffed. And really the importance of it was that it was sparking conversations. It, 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 it you know, did a huge amount of agitational and educational work that really allow, laid a really good industry-wide foundation for real genuine organizing, which is now really coming into its own now. So, you know, there, there's contradictions and things in there too that we could explore. But um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I see kind of the last couple of years of Game Workers Unite and kind of what that's amounted to and its relationship to kind of local organizing. Yeah, I feel like the 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 contradiction discussion that you just brought up, like I feel like, you know, I have a lot of colleagues in games and some of them have their issues with Game Work Unite Unite or don't particularly understand like this or that initiative that might happen. Like I remember the when Activision did all of those layoffs a little while ago and, and Game Work Unite came out and was saying like we are demanding Bobby Kotick step down. And obviously this is like my first like, you know, introduction to any sort of labor organizing. So I was I was trying to understand and glean as much as I could, but I did see like people be like, I don't know if that's the right tack to take. I don't know like if we should be demanding and GWU coming out with a statement saying like, no, like this is a traditional thing to do. Like when, when we see laborers being like unfairly treated and the example of that, that major layoff, like a, a, a thing to do is demand recompense from the managers, the executives. And one of those way, one of the ways that can manifest is through like demanding them to step down. Cause we feel that's a, a unfair way to treat, the employees yeah i mean that's an interesting example um how do i want to tackle this okay so when you act as a collective and when you organize and especially when you're in a union there will come times when the majority decides to do things that maybe you don't agree with and the question is does that mean everything should fall apart and you should throw a hissy fit about it no what it means is you should fall in line and try your best to to uphold that and then, you know, continue to always advocate for the line that you think is most effective, most tactical, will most resonate with people and, and be effective, right? I think the Bobby Kotick one was interesting where we had quite a bit of discussion around it. And, uh, you know, it was something where not everyone was kind of unified on that particular approach. Um, and, you know, ultimately, of course, 
Bobby Kotick was never going to get fired from that, right? But what it was was a springboard. It was it, it, the purpose of it, although it wasn't presented that way. The purpose of it was never to get Bobby Kotick fired. I would have been supremely surprised if that had <laughs> ever happened. I mean, what kind of leverage did we have to make that kind of a call? Absolutely fucking nothing. But what it did do, what it did do was agitate a lot of people. It educated people. It was a moment to kind of use as a, a spark to kind of fan flames for people and, and really kind of, um, you know, chase that, <laughs> that thought process of like, what if we could fire this guy because he's an asshole, right? Like, what if we could fire this guy who gave himself a fucking multi-million dollar bonus and his buddy a multi-million dollar bonus just for changing job titles? What if we fucking could, you know? And, and it's not about, so it's not about achieving it in that, in that sense. It was about kind of a tactical gain of, you know, um, it brought a lot of people into the fold and it, it, it tapped into a lot of people at Activision Blizzard who had previously never been thinking about these kinds of things and thought themselves quite comfortable and happy. And then now suddenly they're like, wait, no, this guy is kind of an asshole. Why is this guy running this company? Um, and, um, you know, people became active through that process. I still think, you know, looking back, I think it was a bit of a sloppy maneuver. I don't personally think it was like the world's greatest tactical move. But I also don't think it really matters all that much. And ultimately, it, it was an opportunity. And, and um, you know, I think people also learned from it. It was a learning opportunity for a lot of people realizing, oh, you can't just make demands and suddenly things will be met. No, you have to actually have the genuine support and popular support and kind of the basis laid for people to really push for and support whatever demands you're making as an organized group. Which goes back into that, you know, silent work being done by organizers, right? Like the the demanding Bobby Kotick's resignation is is the big move, and then hey, that's going to get people's awareness, yeah. and we can we can then work with a larger number of people. Do you think it's simply a like, uh, not to be super reductive about it, but do you think it is a kind of numbers game in terms of like, hey, we just want to get as many laborers and employees like aware no. of us and. Not at all. Not at all. When it comes to organizing, building true power and true organizing capacity, it's not quantitative. It's not about the numbers. It's absolutely qualitative. It's about the nature of the, the relationships between people. It's the level of education. It's the level of working class consciousness in the group. It's about, you know, uh, it's about the qualitative aspect of the numbers. Um, so what I mean by that to maybe make it clear for people who are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, really, you know, here's how I'll put it. Um, maybe it's a little snippy, but this is how I'm feeling right now. Um, <laughs> but, um, I would rather personally organize with three aunties who know how to organize a good neighborhood block social than a hundred leftist organizers or so-called organizers who all they want to do is talk, talk, talk all day. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are not quantitative. You can't measure a hundred leftist, you know, fluffy little organizers who, who think they're hot shit, but really they're not even doing the basics of organizing compared to those three aunties, right? Um, that is a very much a qualitative difference that you have to be able to really feel and you can't just analyze it, right? Um, similarly, you know, apply it out, you know, you can have a walkout of 20,000 people and it could just be... Um, you know, the boss kind of rolls with it. They let you go take a couple hours off in the afternoon. And, um, you know, they just let you do that. And then you come back in and, you know, everything's fine the next day. Or 
You could have worked all the way up to 20,000 people by building one-on-one relationships, building committees, building rooted communities of, of struggle together and support together in specific teams and departments and disciplines on the shop floor and built from the very bottom in a very strong way all the way up to a large, large number like 20,000. And suddenly that's a qualitative difference, right? You can put out a bunch of literature and rile people up and get 20,000 people out for a walkout. But unless it's built off of common struggle and built off of common understanding and common working class consciousness and, and built out of common bonds of real genuine trust and, and kind of support, that 20,000 doesn't mean absolutely anything. I think sometimes it's much more effective to have a small group of people who are really, truly committed and truly willing to, to, to struggle for a thing than to have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people who are just like, you know, passively supportive, or maybe they turn out for a thing, but that's it. You know, the important thing is never the action, right? The direct action, the petition, the walkout, the strike, the, you know, whatever the case may be, that's never it. The The whole story is the, the, the greater iceberg under the water, right? The, the vast weight of all the conversations and relationships built that lead to that final little tip of the iceberg poking at the top, hoping to kind of jut out of the water a little bit and make some public change, right? Ultimately, it's like, the direct action is just the final blow. It should be like the thing that tips the thing over, right? But you need to build up all the momentum and weight behind it through the one-on-one organizing and through the support building, community building first to lay that real power base there so that when you do mobilize, it's big, it's hefty, it's it's communal, it's powerful, and not just a bunch of people turning out for a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So do you think we're like definitely still in like the building phase of, of that scenario? Like it... It feels like obviously we've been seeing this upward trend in general, like not just in games and not just in tech. Like we feel, I feel like we see this upward trend of uh, awareness, labor awareness, and labor organizing. And do you think, like, I don't know, in uh, the 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 goal of having you know healthy workers' rights or a healthy like you know labor organization in in shops around the country? Like, do you think that's a you know, a five-year goal, a 10-year goal. Like I'm, it's, it's, it's this weird thing, right? Because I mean, unions, labor organizations were fairly strong first half of the 20th century or so. Right. Um, I'm not a perfect labor historian by any means. So (laughs) what I know by like my layman's knowledge, and then like, obviously they fell off in the second half. Uh, we see like more, neoliberal like more conservative policies like being put in place that 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 kind of tip the scales more over to the executive class to the the management class and then we see that that classic chart that always makes the rounds where like wages are like this they're stagnating they're flat for decades and decades and then cost of living uh is rising 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 and like that that major that that gap between the two is basically where you know working class people die Right. Because they can't survive uh, because they're not being paid. And like there's this lack of awareness that the split happened because labor organizing kind of just went away or it was, you know, it was killed. But like by was it killed by simply the businesses or was it killed by businesses working with the government? I guess the latter is the more the, the truer version. There's of no difference. Our <laughs> government true. works for corporations. That's when fair. We suffer, when we suffer economic crises or when we suffer a recession, when we suffer through COVID-19, who gets the bailout? It's the fucking companies. It's the banks. It's the massive corporations that have more money they, than they even know what to do with. They get the bailouts. The workers never get bailed out. 
you know, we get little scraps to keep us floating by so we can still keep doing our jobs. But beyond that, we never get bailed out. Our entire government is set up to support these corporations, right? Um, and I think that's important to understand. So there's really not much of a separation between corporations and, and the government in that way. And ultimately, you know, both from external and internal um pressures you know the labor movement was slowly suffocated and nearly killed over the last you know several decades ultimately you know the peak of the labor movement in the united states had about i think it was 32 percent of 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 workers represented in unions i think this was just after world war ii um in fact the labor movement was so militant at that point that there were straight up rebellions and general strikes around that time um you know especially leading up to and during the war you saw a, a huge amount of factory seizures and all kinds of things, like very, very, very militant labor organizing. Um, so how do we get to this point now? Well, I mean, a great amount of it is really kind of twofold. One, externally, companies uh, and, you know, the representatives in, in government have been on an all-out offensive since pretty much the, eight, the 80s, really, the 70s and 80s, um, starting not with Reagan, really, but really even with Democratic politicians before him. But, um, you know, an all-out war on labor has pretty much been uh, full-on <laughs> happening ever since, you know, the 70s and 80s, especially with, like, you know, it, when you watch your president bust a national union when they're on strike and literally make it illegal for them to go on strike, that does something. That's a, That has this chilling effect across the entire labor movement, right? When you see even Democratic presidents like Jimmy Carter be absolutely ruthless to the labor movement. Um, that has a huge chilling effect. You know, there's no real difference in terms of how labor is treated between these two parties, ultimately. Um, and I think it's important to decouple those things in one's mind. And, um, you know, I think the important thing to understand is, you know, you were talking about that graph where, you know, uh, wages, real wages have kind of stagnated while cost of living goes up. Um, there's also, I think, a more powerful uh, graph to see where if you chart kind of... Uh, you know, the organized population of, of, of the labor force in the United States, it drops drastically from the 30s to, you know, the present day, right? And almost perfectly in inverse, every little inch it drops, another graph rises, which is the increase of wealth going to the top 1%, right? Um, the more union membership drops, the more money funnels up to the 1%. This is just concrete. It's statistically accurate. It is the truth, right? And and I think that's the reality we need to understand. The the wealthy owners of this this you know these companies and and of this country really um, have waged an all out battle against organized labor because it's the only freaking thing that actually protects working people and protects their voice and protects their rights on the job um, in the long term. I mean, <laughs> I don't think really anyone my age expects to ever really retire, let alone what the hell is a pension, right? And yet a huge amount of the working class expected those things, you know, just even decades ago. So we're getting like super way off topic, but (laughs) I think, I think what this really means to me is like your original question that you asked before we got into this subject was, you know, what is the goal? Like, where are we right now? And what's the goal in terms of organizing? Are we still in this foundation laying phase, right? Um, And I would say there is no goal. There is no point at which we reach a point where we're perfectly happy and stable because of two things. One, so long as there are bosses and workers, there will always be exploitation. So 
the way companies function is profit driven, right? They buy and sell and compete with each other. And the general economic trend within companies is to suppress wages over and over. It's about pulling the rug out from under people, slowly chipping away at wages. We see this in industries that used to be really wonderful, like upper middle class jobs, like working in the auto industry. Over decades, they chip away at each little bit of their rights, each little bit of their benefits, each little bit of their pay. Bit by bit, they war- you know they wage a war of attrition, essentially, on the working class. And all wages and benefits trend downwards because to be competitive and to compete in a market such that you stay afloat as a company, you have to extract extra unpaid labor from your workers. You have to, because that's where profit comes from. And only the profitable companies survive, right? So the inherent logic of how companies work is to press wages and conditions down, 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 so that they can have higher, higher, higher profits, so they can be more competitive in the market, right? It's, it's super basic economics. This is just how it works. And so as long as that system is set up, and as long as this is occurring, you will never get to a goalpost where, ah, finally, we can sit down on top of the hill and we've really finished our hike up the hill and now everyone's happy because, you know, we, we saw it throughout, you know, the 1900s. At the very beginning of the 1900s, labor was completely disorganized. For the first three and four or five decades, labor organized and organized and organized to a huge powerful point of 30 some odd percent support and membership and wages were up in historically unprecedented ways. Um, and then they, you know, the bosses chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away down to now where we have um, almost the exact same inequality level as when we entered the Great Depression and in in coming out of the roaring 20s. I mean, it's just a cycle. It goes back and forth. So my point is there is no goal. The struggle continues forever. As long as there's a boss to push a boot, a boot down on your neck, there's going to have to be organized labor to push that boot back off, right? So there really is no end. And you see that in in union organizing as well. On the smaller, more specific example, if you organize a union in your your shop and you end up, you know, getting a contract and and you ratify it and it has all these new protections and benefits and things, that's not going to be perfectly guaranteed just because now it's a legal contract. You know, labor law is very flawed. It's a very mediocre shield and it's a terrible, terrible sword. So labor law is really bad for organizing. It's pretty okay for maybe protecting yourself. But ultimately, it goes both ways. Labor law restricts the bosses, but it also restricts the workers and how they organize. But the difference is the bosses have a huge amount of power and legal teams and pressure and all kinds of things they can do to essentially avoid and break the law. You see, I've, I've never seen an organizing campaign where an employer didn't break the law. Even if it was unknowing, they always, always do because they have a huge amount of power and leverage. So what I'm trying to say here is like, ultimately, you can organize a contract, you can get all these new rights and better conditions put into contract, but then you have to defend it. You can't sit on your laurels once you organize a union and you have a contract. You have to defend it then at that point, because starting day one after that contract goes into effect, your boss is going to start testing the water, seeing what they can and can't push on, what they can and get you to concede, what ground they can make you uh, retreat from, right? It's a constant battle, constant. Even if you have a contract that's theoretically a legally binding document, your boss is just not going to give a shit and they're going to push back on it, you know, nine times out of 10. So even if you've organized a union, it's still a battle. It's still a struggle. You know, it's not a goal to get a union. A union is a tool that people can build and pick up and use to their advantage and they should, but 
it's not a goal in and of itself. It's a tool by which we, at the very least, give ourselves a little bit of breathing room, a little bit better respect and rights and guaranteed safety on the job and things like that. Um, and, you know, that's just like a very realistic portrayal of what the what the dynamic there is. And I know I'm going on quite a while, but I think to understand one thing, you have to understand all the other things that are tied to it. And so, um, you know, I think it's very essential to understand it, not as like a singular goal or a checklist one can follow through, but instead it truly is a very active, a very dynamic pushing and pulling system of kind of reactions and pressures and, and, and things like that. Yeah, why? Well, and I think it's important. It 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 presses upon you the the reality of the situation. If you understand unions and labor organizing as a tool as opposed to an endpoint, like it, I think it helps people in their minds understand like what the actual like stakes are and what like they should be tr- striving towards and like what yeah. a what organization can can do for them and improve their workplace as opposed to like, well, we have a union now, like we got it. Like you know, I think of I mean, now we're done. Like, yeah, like Game Workers Unite UK exists now, and I mean, as an official, like as a, a organizing labor organization recognized by the UK government. And then we also have like Kickstarter United as a as a force within Kickstarter, like, and those aren't endpoints, right? Like those are those are beginning points, like you said. Absolutely, it's a launch pad. This is only the beginning. You know, forming your union is the start. You've gotten together as a group. Now what? That's the real challenge to anyone who's engaged in active labor organizing. Well, I want to end with one more question because we've kind of talked around the the COVID-19 stuff a little bit. And I'm curious mm. if you think this at all is an inflection point for labor organizing in general or for getting specific rights. Like I've seen a lot of people say, uh, we talked about this before we started recording, how, hey, now that because, you know, game, the game industry is is kind of centralized in a couple key points, specifically in the United States. You know, you have Silicon Valley, you have Seattle, you have, it's, it's kind of, I mean, like there are a bunch of places on the East Coast, but like they're more so on the West Coast. And there, there are a lot of people saying like, I would do that, but like, I can't live in these very expensive cities or like, you know, maybe I am a, a worker with a disability and, and working within an office environment is difficult for me. And so you see a lot of people saying like, hey, now they're all working from home maybe people will recognize the like value and how this doesn't impede like people's work. And maybe this will start pushing a point of like, Hey, I should be able to telework whenever or telework from a different city or et cetera, et cetera. And even going beyond that, do you see like the COVID-19 stuff? We're seeing unprecedented levels of, of unemployment, like, you know, what is this? The, the second once in a lifetime, like economic, uh, collapse that we're seeing. So I'm curious if you think like this at all, like will be something, another tool that people can use to like impress upon and, and use to organize better. Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, one, um, you know, people have been saying for years and years and years, Hey, we should be more accessible to people who want, who live, you know, maybe not in these big expensive urban centers, but maybe they live out in, you know, the countryside or something, but have the skills like we should employ them remotely or for people who have various disabilities or needs and things to allow them to work remotely or for people who have mental health um, circumstances like actually like myself who don't function very well in an office setting, but can absolutely be productive if at least for a few days a week are able to work from home. Um, I think this really proves that you know, I think we're going to come out of this realizing like, or we won't be realizing, you know, or I think our bosses will realize that, oh, it's very much doable. Now, that being said, will they try to 
you know, will they allow us all to work from home moving forward? No. The moment this clears up, they're going to want you back in the office because they can watch you and track you and all these things, right? They don't trust you because, you know, you're not a person in the eyes of the spreadsheet that the boss maintains. You're a unit that's supposed to pump out a certain amount of product, right? Um, but, um, you know, I, I think it, it, it offers a touch point for the working class, like you're saying, like, we know it's possible. So why the hell are you not giving it to us now, right? I think that'll be the thing after COVID, right? For instance, like, there's so much this so much consciousness being raised right now around essential workers and who truly is essential in the society. And I feel like just a couple weeks ago on Twitter, I was seeing people make fun of service workers for being NPCs in their lives, which is such a horrific fucking thing to say about a person. Um, but now everyone's like, oh my God, all the grocery store workers are so important. God bless grocery store workers at Ralph's. And it's like, I mean, yeah, because they're so essential to the economy and keeping your ass alive. But, you know, just moments before we were, you know, making fun of them, I thought, on Twitter, right? So I think moments like these absolutely are consciousness raising. They're they're moments to open people's eyes to things and to the real reality of the situation. And ultimately, you know, I have a lot of workplaces where we're organizing right now where they've been given all kinds of things. And in fact, they worry about it deflating their organizing efforts, but I think it's the exact opposite. For instance... Um, a particular workplace where they don't pay people very well. It's even sub-industry standard pay for even within the games industry, let alone the broader tech industry. They're now getting paid like the bosses being really kind, quote unquote, and paying, you know, uh, an extra 500 a month to everybody. So they have a little extra financial stability and they're letting them work from home and all kinds of flexibility to teach their kids during the day, which all these things are great, except for when you come back to work and they try to take those things away, that's when you get a fucking rebellion on your hands, right? So the committee feels like right now they're very worried that, you know, today it's harder to organize because people feel complacent or kind of they're they're happy and like the boss seems really nice. But I, I'll guarantee you, the moment you get back to the office and COVID-19 is gone, they're going to try to take all those perks and extra pay and say, oh, well, it was just because we were in a crisis and X, Y, Z. And it's like, yeah, but we had the money. Where's that money going now? You know, into your fucking pocket? So I think, you know, it's these moments that like ask these really broach these big asking questions that, um, you know, people can really use as tools in their pocket when organizing in the future. But the importance of it is you have to lay the groundwork now uh, to get people to understand like, yeah, this is great now. Maybe we're flexible and we're able to work from home. But I'm going to tell you, like, when we go back to work, it's not they're going to try to take it all away. And your you know, your coworkers might say, oh, no, they won't do that. You know, our boss is nice. But when they do you will have called that shot from a thousand yards away. And that's how you build trust in organizing. That's how you build trust um, in, in an organizing committee, right? So these are all moments. I think it'll be providing us a lot of <laughs> organizing material in the long term, to say the absolute least. I think this is going to be, you know, a moment uh, in history that we're going to look back over the last few years, especially in the context of this rising labor movement that's been growing for the past, you know, five years or so. I think we're going to look back as this as a, as a major tipping point in class consciousness in the U.S. Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree with that, and I'm I really hope it works out to the benefit of of laborers and not just goes back to the status quo that we had before. Right, and the difference will be: were we active? Were we talking to people? Were we building relationships? Were we, you know, educating people about this? Were we, you know, um, 
you know, challenging people who are trying to point blame at, you know, you know, Chinese uh, people and all kinds of things like there's a lot of nasty shit happening, too. Right. There's always reactionary stuff that comes in a crisis like this. Right. Xenophobia, xenophobia, racism, um, you know, pitting different groups of people against each other. But it's up to us as organizers and as just good people to provide the alternate worldview, to provide that, um, you know, working class analysis and a more egalitarian, you know, collaborative analysis so that once this fades, we do have hopefully the benefit of these experiences that teach people to be stronger together and stuff. But if we don't do that, if we don't play an active role, if we just sit back, that class consciousness will never be formed because class consciousness is formed through conversations. It's through struggle. It's through working together. So unless people are doing that and, um, and unless they're just sitting, you know, um, you know, at, at home, not doing anything during this time, uh, we're not going to have that benefit. You know, it's going to take us actually stepping up to, to reap that benefit for working class consciousness after this moment passes. Yeah, I agree. I feel like what I've taken away the most from this conversation, like obviously like the importance of organizing and and sticking to your guns and making sure like you can hold your your bosses and your employers accountable. But like when you talk about organizing, like it seems like the biggest message is in that solidarity, in that compassion and making sure that like you're able to to reach out to to your fellow workers and to your community and understand what their needs are and, and how to work together cohesively and all of that. Absolutely. It always has to be active. It doesn't matter what you think or say or feel. What matters is what you do. It matters with what you do every day, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, month to month, whether it's a crisis or whether life's boring. What you do is going to define what the working class is like, how supported we are, how organized we are, and what good we can do in the world. It has to be about being active and nothing else. Well, Emma, where can people go if they want to like learn more about specifically like working with GWU or with Code CWA and learning more about organizing maybe their workplace or helping with other workplaces? Like, where can people go for more information about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, some of the basics I would say was like you know you can go to GameworkersUnite.org um, and at GameWorkers on Twitter uh, for CWA and Code CWA. I would say go to Code-CWA.org. Uh, that's a website where you can get in touch with an organizer and and get plugged into things like organizer training and and you know work directly with myself or any of the other organizers who work on the effort um, to help organize your community and your workplace, right? And you can obviously follow us on Twitter at code underscore CWA. Um, and um, you know, I think if you want to learn about labor organizing, you know, you can spend a decade reading books about it and listening to podcasts like this and things. But really, I think you learn more in a couple one-on-one conversations with a coworker than you ever could from reading any books or materials. So I would encourage people to reach out, get in touch with an organizer, whether it's myself or any other organizer, get the get the basic skills down. And then do one-on-one conversations. That's how you build the skills. It all has to be in practice. Uh, would you like to plug your own Twitter account or contact info or anything like that as well? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really recommend anyone following me on Twitter. But, you know, <laughs> at Emma Kinema is great. <laughs> That's your personal choice. Awesome. Well, you can also find me at Dylan Vento. And if you want to listen to more episodes from Wardcast, you can find us online at ward-games.com or on Twitter at wardvideogames. Emma uh thank you so much for talking to me especially during you know the pandemic that's happening i know we've been trying to schedule this for a while but i really appreciate being able to take the time and and speak with you on on all of these matters
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, I'm sorry that it took so long to get to this, but it was a really wonderful time. And I really appreciate you having me on. And ultimately, um, you know, really excited about the work that you do and proud to be here in solidarity. I appreciate it. Well, until next time. Awesome. See ya.